0: This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow,
1: way right! Oh, it takes a dead dead hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me! Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill, one hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that.
0: Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 podcast, uh, Doug Mauch, who's uh, one of our staff members and also had a really interesting, uh, Doug, you've had a really interesting you know, professional career as well. And when we've talked in the past, I thought some of these stories would just be great to have on the podcast. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about your history uh, as a golf professional and working at Augusta and all the, the cool stuff you've gotten to do with your career. So thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it
1: thanks jason it's great to be with you and first i want to say i'm, I'm a very proud staff member of the sub 70 brand what you've done is is phenomenal and i wish you the best of luck going forward
0: hey it's been fun it really has between you know very lucky of uh what we're doing with the the golf clubs and the people i get to talk with in the industry and stuff if you would have told me i get to do this for a living when i was yeah. a kid it's i'm, I'm very great. fortunate but thank you for the kind words i really appreciate it i know you're just out in winged foot uh kind of yep. doing a little U.S. Open scouting for us for next year. So <laughs> I know you were out there. What are you sort of seeing? What did you think of the course set up? And what kind of U.S. Open do you think we could potentially have next year?
1: Yeah, I was up there about two, three weeks ago with my brother, who I'm fortunate to play with about once or twice a year. And he's a, a member there. So I'm very lucky in that respect. And I was uh, very surprised at how the fairways have lessened the last couple of years. And, um, you know, typical U.S. Open, you know, growing up at the Page golf course and seeing those those fairways kind of you know, cut in half over the last couple of years, it, it reminded me of that. And, you know, um, it's already a very long golf course and they made it even longer. Um, we didn't we didn't play it back there. We played the white tees about 6,500 yards and there was pretty much on every tee box about 30 to 40 yards behind us. And uh, it was it was unbelievable and it was in perfect condition. You know, the superintendent, his name is Steve Rabideau. Happened to be a friend. Uh, he was a superintendent when I was a head pro at uh, Wheatley Hills on Long Island. And now he's a wing club for the last five or six years. And he's done a, an amazing job. Um, he's renovated both of the golf courses in the last two years. So every bunker, every tee box and every green on the west course and east course, but the U.S. Open course has been changed in the last 18 months or so. And to me, they've made the toughest greens in the world tougher which to me is going to make it a very interesting U.S. Open.
0: Tough, but yet fair, would you say, for the best players in the world? Or is it going to be one of those U.S. Opens where it's going to be an old school U.S. Open where, you know, par or one or two under could potentially win it, depending, you know, how difficult. In other words, will that will that setup be as difficult as they want it to be, in your opinion?
1: I think they can make that golf course as far as they want it to be. Again, it all depends on the conditions the week before and the week of. With the rain, if they get, you know, if the greens are soft, but, well, take the first hole for instance. It was a very steep back-to-front green, and then they added about three little pods. I call it, you know, if you picture a little rain pod where where some rain would kind of gather on the greens. They added those little kind of swales, you know, for a better term in the golf world. But uh, so they made the tougher screen. To me, it was the first green. They made it tougher. Again, it all depends on the green speed. I don't think they can get them over 12 for the U.S. Open because they are very diabolical from the back to the front. And they probably added a bunch of those little swales on probably six or seven greens, you know, probably probably some more pin placements they can have, you know, in the back of a green, uh, maybe because before it was so steep. But they kind of put these little swales there where the ball would kind of gather. Uh, but if you're not in that swell, be a very tough putt to get in there and to keep it there. So, yeah, just the greens themselves have become tougher. Uh, like I said, the fairways have been narrowed. They have moved the bunkers out, obviously, to where those guys have been hitting the ball about 310 yards or so. And they've, they've added some some lifts to the fairway bunkers, which will also be another hazard per se. Um, so it's it's, it's going to be fun to watch now after seeing it two weeks ago.
0: Do you think it could be a U.S. Open again where there's a premium on driving the ball in the fairway versus hitting gouge? Do you think that could be back in play again where you're going to have to put the ball in the fairway to, to be able to compete?
1: Yeah, most definitely. And he told me that the rough will be, or Steve said the rough will be about four inches, but it was already kind of thick. And obviously, it's another year away. It all depends on the, on the winter season they have, but you know, the rough was pretty thick, and um, it wasn't terribly long yet. But it was only about two inches, but a four-inch rough, and being that narrow and the greens being guarded by some very deep bunkers, I mean, it could be burly tough or again, it depends how they set it up. But uh, I mean, most of the fairways are also tree lined, even though they probably lost a couple of thousand trees in the last 10 years or so, it's still pretty tree lined and it's just going to be a great test of golf and it could be very hard, but it depends how the USGA does it. If they do the Pebble Beach setup where it was playable and it didn't get away from them, or the Shinnecock setup where it's on the edge. So I'll be very curious to see what happens next year.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see it. Hopefully they start getting the the setups like they did at Pebble Beach correct this year and let the guys play and the best golf come out versus, you know, having a couple holes and some controversy. So let's let's hope it's in great shape. Um, I, I agree. Going to ask you, too, about uh, the start of your golfing career. Sort of what was your background, and, and how did you d- decide uh, to turn professional and become a, a golf pro?
1: Well, um, well, my, my parents joined a golf club or country club when I was about 12 years old on the ground, called Hempstead Country Club, and kind of got you know, started there and um, you know, started caddying in the mornings. and We couldn't play as juniors until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the head pro back then made made sure we didn't start until 3 o'clock. So, But after we got hooked on it, uh, I pretty much played every day from, you know, March 15th till November 15th, you know, after school. But every day in the summertime, you know, we'd caddy and then play. And Didn't really have a goal in mind, you know, to become a golf professional or PGA member until I was about probably 15 years old when we had a, a U.S. Open qualifier who was at Hempstead. And the caddy master was a good friend, and he pointed down to a bag, and I picked it up and started walking. walk, and he said, well, wait a minute, this guy just put his bag down. Why don't you take this one? And that point right there, and that pretty much changed my life when I picked up the bag of uh, Craig Watson, who has been a mentor my whole life and a uh, very close friend. And uh, Craig's a very good player. He was the head pro at the Cree Club. And then for the next couple of years, you know, I guess he took a you know, a liking to me. The next couple of years, he would call me up and I would go caddy for him in the Met section, you know, local events. And I kind of fell in love with the whole idea of being a golf pro. It just seemed pretty cool and looked cool. And I was in college up in, in the Boston area. And he called me and said, do you want to come work for me and my dad up at Worcester Country Club? And, you know, Westchester to me, you know, growing up on Long Island was, you know, was a huge, huge place to be at and, you know, couldn't say yes fast enough. I was 19, 20 years old and uh, he left the Creek Club to go up to Westchester to work for his dad, Bob Watson, who was a pretty famous uh, club professional at his right and from, from Texas and former president of the Met PGA and just a wonderful man and, you know, class acting so that's how it started. I went to work at the Westchester Country Club when I was 20 years old and worked there for four years. Turned, uh, I passed my PAT my second year, and you know, which is the playing ability test, and then turned pro, and that was it. That was the whole start, and you know, it was it was it was awesome.
0: And then, how does that lead to? You know, which has to be like one of the coolest jobs in the world to be an assistant golf professional at Augusta National, and then you know, how did how did you wind up with sure. with that job and and then we can dig a little deeper into that one. But it had sure. a hell of a cool experience.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was very fortunate in my career because I went from Westchester to Ardsley Country Club to work for a gentleman named Jim Bender. Um, was there for three years, and then one day. We are down here in Florida and I went up to him and said, Jim, I was just offered the assistant job at, at the Maidstone Club, but I told him I won't take it because I'm already, I told you I'm coming back partially next year. He said, Pretty much, are you crazy? Maidstone's my favorite place in the world. You're going to go work at Maidstone. And that conversation again changed a lot of things because then I went to Maidstone and worked for Eden Foster. It was his first year at Maidstone and I was the first assistant teaching professional. And then in my second year there, David Spencer, who was a head pro from Augusta National, also was a head pro at at Maidstone years before that. He did both jobs. um, Came in to visit uh, some of the members, and he walked in the shop and asked if I would, yeah, I just happened to be there, and to ship out a a disc. You know, back then we had you know the um, the compact disc or the floppy disc. To ship out something for his wife, and I said sure, so we can do that for you. And then he asked me what I do for the winter time, and I kind of thought quick and kind of stumbled. I said, well, I usually go down to Florida and play in tournaments, but this year I'm thinking about getting a job to help my career. And he said, why don't you mail me your resume? And three months later, he called Eden Foster, the head pro, and offered me the job as, as one of the assistants down there. So. Kind of being in the right place at the right time, and that was about it. Very, very lucky.
0: It shows what good customer service can do, right? And probably yes. said, hey, yes. "Nice, nice guy." Wouldn't mind having him on the staff. Um, so you become an assistant at Augusta, and are the duties different at Augusta National as as an assistant golf professional versus the other jobs that you had? had? Was there a, was there a difference in that club, or is it pretty much you know pretty much the same of where you've been? Everywhere else, just the magnitude of the club is at a, a different level.
1: Yeah, everything is different per se. Um, yes, you're still an assistant pro. You, you still have the customer service end of it, dealing you know, with members and the guests. But you know, I think I gave maybe one or two lessons the, in, the entire year. Um, so yeah, in that respect, it's different. Uh, there were two two head professionals, Dave Spencer and Bob uh, Klecky. They were there for a very long time and together. And, and there was three assistants. Myself, Eric Peterson, and and also Tony Sessa, who also came from Maidstone while we were down together, and Tony is now the head professional there at Augusta with with JJ Weaver, another former Maidstone assistant, and one of my assistants at it in uh, California when I was a head pro. But anyway, so yes, it was different. We get in the shop about seven fifteen, set up uh, everything, or you know make sure everything is clean and neat. The members would get there about seven thirty, quarter to eight. With their guests, again, 90% of the rounds during the week would be one member and their and their three guests. So we would take care of the members. I would usually go to the first tee, and kind of be an unofficial starter greeter, kind of make the guests feel welcome. So I'd be out there, you know, if it wasn't busy, it wouldn't be too long, but maybe an hour, hour and a half every morning. Again, just greeting the members. I mean, yeah, the members and the guests. The guests were always nervous, as you probably could imagine. Um, they're all excited and nervous and can't believe that they're about to hit their first tee shot at Augusta National. So it was always kind of cool to see that. And then we'd um, come in for lunch or hang out a little bit because everybody would be out playing. And then they would all come back in and have lunch and probably go go play either the, the Paw 3 course or go back on the golf course again. And then at about 2 o'clock, one of the head pros would probably say, right, boys, let's go. And one of us would put the four bags on a golf cart or on two golf carts and we go play nine holes a lot. And, and the ladies in the shop would be there and you know there wouldn't be much going on. Cause, again, everybody's really out, out playing. And then we come back in after nine holes by an hour and 15 minutes. And then all the members and guests would come back in, do their shopping. And about five o'clock, 515, we vacuum the shop and go home. And that was a typical day.
0: So you would get to play Augusta two or three times a week? Is that a a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I probably played the front. Again, we only played the the front nine because everybody was on the back nine a lot of times. But we probably played the front nine or nine holes Yeah, two or three times a week. And I probably played with a member or their guest or or vice or or both at least once a week. I played 18 holes. So it was very lucky. But that was until about probably February fifteenth or so or March first when we started really focusing on the masters. And then that and then it was definitely not a normal assistant pro job where you know, every focus was on the masters and every you know, well again, well we would get there in the morning dress in our normal golf clothes and greet the members and guests, they tee off and then we put on t shirt and jeans and get dirty and unpack boxes and price stuff and clean the indoor golf shop and and things like that. So, which was kind of fun and, you know, did that for about four to five weeks leading up to the masters. So yeah, there was a lot going on, you know, for the last year, you know, for the six weeks preceding the masters. How much
0: different does the golf course play for the members most of the year compared to the build up to Augusta. So, what's the main yep. difference that you see between the normal time period and hey, we're we're about to host a major here? How does how much different does the course play or doesn't it play any different from kind of how we see it on TV in April?
1: Yeah, it plays a lot different, uh, mostly because you know, as you know, Augusta's open pretty much in the winter. You know, October fifteenth, give or take a couple of days, to May fifteenth. So. You know, it's you know, the prime time season is December, January, February, March, and it's it can get chilly in Augusta and it's a winter grass. Um that it you know, doesn't really come into fruition unless it's really hot. And uh so the course plays very, very long. Um it plays a little wet it but it plays long. The grass is not as fault, it's it's always green, it always looks beautiful but it's not as thick and lush as it is come late March, early April, when the Bermuda kind of starts to kind of creep in there, it gets a little thicker, a little tighter, and gets firmer. But from the members' tees, it plays pretty long, again, because it's kind of soft, and we we don't get the roll as much as you do in April when the Masters comes around.
0: What's what's the – the vibe like at the club for the members i mean obviously i can understand why the the guests are nervous and excited and all the rest yep. of it. but if it's if there's not a lot of guests is it is it formal is it low-key is it uh, quote-unquote stuffy what, what what's sort of the vibe that the members want to have at their at their club there what's what's sort of the you know the overall impression you kind of had of the club of how it's how it's ran and what the members sort of want
1: out of it well Great question. I've always said, you know, everything at Augusta is pretty much perfect. Yeah, it's as close to perfect as you can get. And you know, we always we had always strived to make everything perfect. Obviously, nothing's perfect. No one's perfect. But everything there. I mean, everything's thought about there. Everything is done the right way. Um, but the membership, once they get there, they're just normal guys. You know, when they're at their club at home, say at say Wingfoot. You know, everybody looks at them and says, oh. He's, he's a member at Augusta. That guy's pretty cool. But when they get there, they're all the same person. It's just a normal club. It's a very relaxed atmosphere. You know, most of them are, are CEOs at some very high-end jobs or very stressful positions. But once they get there, they don't seem to worry about it. Again, I, I was back there in the day where there wasn't any cell phones yet. So, you know, I, I don't know what happens now. But everybody there kind of just let it go, and it was a very relaxed atmosphere. They just wanted to play golf we, for the two or three days they were there um it was it was really cool to see you know the biggest men in 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 business industry were just normal guys when they get on property and uh it was you know pretty enlightening and like i said it was it was pretty cool to see
0: i know you mentioned this earlier but what is the reason that they do shut augusta down you know during the late spring summer months is it the fact that the the grass just doesn't it's just too hard to grow in that kind of heat, or what's the whole idea about it, you know, shutting it down kind of that early in the year and letting it, you know, go all summer yep. without anyone playing it?
1: Sure. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is only about 20 members who live local. The other 280, and I just gave away the number of the members there, which I think most people know now by reading Golf Digest or anything. Everything's pretty public now. So you know, back in the old days, we really wouldn't talk much about it or say anything, but now everything is, seems to be out. So. Okay. But uh, yeah, so there's only about 20 local members. The rest of them go to their clubs and their homes, you know, for the rest of the year, the grass does change into pretty heavy Bermuda. It doesn't look as pretty. So that's one reason. And also, you know, it's the five months is when they do all the work on the golf course. And uh, again, there's really nobody there. It's too hot. And it's just, you know, it just works out where it's just their, their quiet season. And, that's their their time to get everything done. You know, they build a couple of new holes and change some holes and build a new building. You know, as you probably read about, they've, you know, changed the whole parking area. Now there's the practice facility. And, you know, the Augusta National Golf Club moved the an entire road a couple of years ago, the Berkman's Road, which is right next to the property. Now it's about a quarter of a mile away. And uh, it is pretty amazing what they can do.
0: Is without giving up too much, which I'm not asking to do because I, I, know there's, you know, you worked out there and you respect the privacy of the club. But, but how does the Correct. membership work? You know, is it is it do the other members kind of have this person or CEO out there? Then they like hanging with them, so or him or her at this point, I should say. So then they yeah, eventually sure. get an invite, or is it is there a formal process, or is it a kind of an informal process of you know who gets that invite to to be invited to Augusta? Sure.
1: Yeah, I believe everything's pretty informal, as you probably read. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, the old story about uh, Bill Gates asking to join, you know, they said no for many years, or well, I don't know if it's true or not, but he supposedly asked, but he is now a member, but it just took him a very long time, supposedly. But who knows? You know, the old crush. If if he asks, you know, you won't get in. But, um, I mean, there are a couple of not, not automatic spots, but if you're the CEO of IBM, You're going to be a member if you're the CEO of Bank of America, per se. You you will be the member or, you know, if the CFO. But it's pretty much informal. You know, no one there. They just come there as a guest a couple of times. They meet the other members, you know, members who who might nominate a member per se, for lack of a better term, might bring somebody a couple of times a year as a guest or maybe back to back years. And then they get to know the other members. And I think that's how it's pretty much done.
0: Was there some of the members that were there, is there one or two that were your just absolute favorites where they're just the nicest, coolest person, even though they have all of this in front of them, they're still humble, nice, funny? Is there some that stood out that you just loved seeing that member come to the club?
1: I'm going to have to say Jack Welch was one of the greatest guys you'll ever get to meet, you know, a former CEO of, of GE. You know, Mr. Business, I, you know, call him, um, uh, he was such a laid back, funny, gregarious guy that just loved golf, loved to talk about it. And, uh, he was, he was one guy that, you know, we loved when he came around. And Johnny Harris, who owns you know, Crow Hollow up in Carolina, and they were always playing together. He was another great guy. Um, you know, there were so many, you know, Luke Gerstner was there from IBM when I was working there. Just, you know, just great guys. Frank Broyles, the former coach of Arkansas and the AD from Arkansas, he he was there a lot, and he'd always he I think he was 17 years old when he was there, and he'd walk into the pro shop like he was bouncing off the walls, just so excited, and you know just normal guys that are just there to have a good time and just enjoy it. know yeah, I think they were all they all felt lucky to be a member there and and honored, and you can see that in their faces too, and you know. They didn't take it for granted they were all very very careful it seemed like you know it wasn't like a normal club where you can do whatever you want to do you know they're all careful but they're all just having a good time as well
0: hey everyone it's jason at the sub 70 podcast our 639 cb forged iron just became available in a PVD tour black finish so We definitely listened to the customers. They wanted to see this forged iron in the uh, black finish, and uh, we have gotten it in stock. So uh, all of the particulars, images, all that good stuff is on golfsub70.com. And of course, if you need uh, help at all with any of the fittings or technical questions or anything we can do to make sure these clubs fit perfectly for you, uh, let us know. Remember our prices are always factory direct. And uh, we're trying to give you the absolute best quality product we can make, but just do it at a lot better price. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys are enjoying the uh, conversation with Doug. And definitely check out the 639CBs with the Tour Black finish. They look really, really sharp. Thanks again. Some of the changes to the golf course, I mean, uh, you've seen it over the years. What what were some of the changes, you know, that when you were there that you saw? and, And then thoughts on those changes and Is there any holes that you think, you know, over time have gotten potentially better or or, or worse from the architectural changes they seem to make at Augusta?
1: Well, I was there for Tiger's first win in 1997, and I think the club didn't like where he was hitting the ball. And I think, you know, a few of the changes went into effect, you know, maybe during that week, or that's when they started thinking about it, Um, like that they changed number seven, which I still don't like at all. Number seven was a great, short, fun hole. If the members tease, we can almost drive the green. In fact, my my fellow assistant, Pearl Eric Peterson, I sort of knock on the green on number seven. And uh you know, now it's a I think four hundred and sixty yard par four. That was a three sixty par four. But to me, the green's built for a nine iron pitching wedge sandwich kind of a shot, not for a six seven iron. Um you know, they haven't changed. The fairway, it's still very tight, or they made it even tighter, sorry. You know, they put trees everywhere to make it even tighter. So I think number seven kind of lost its kind of a fun, kind of a, you know, interesting hole. Um, number 11, I believe they um, they made it much tighter up, uh, up top there, you know, on, on the top right of the fairway. You know, Tiger lucked out this year by hitting, I think, two balls right of those trees where he had a shot. But, you know, they make, again, to me, to make the toughest holes tougher is kind of a oxymoron. You know, I like to see, make the easier holes a little tougher, but to me, they made the toughest holes tougher, like number 11. What they did with number five this year, again, I know technology is is adding 40, 50 yards from, obviously, when I was there, but I just don't see, you know, they're making par fours into par fives. And it just, again, and par doesn't matter, the word par is just kind of lost its little, you know, fun to me. You know, they're making it more into a U.S. Open type golf course rather than 30s everywhere.
0: So on hole 11, with more room, was it, do you think it just made it a more, for lack of a better word, like fun hole of how aggressive you could kind of be where you could kind of go up the right a little bit more, but then your angle might not be as good to kind of hit that little draw into it. And now it seems like a lot of people just kind of bail it out no matter you know sort of where they're at do you think it just took some of the creativity out of that hole a little bit or where do you think like, yeah. for, that's such an iconic hole where is the original design versus where it's at now kind of gone off a little bit in your opinion what's it what's taken away from that yeah.
1: hole well like what you said you know now they have to hit a left obviously because that's the left fairway, and now there's they have to kind of hit it they kind of kind of aim wing right hook it in there but before you could hit it into the right side of the fairway and had a good look down to the green. Mm-hmm. And then yes. guys, they would be more aggressive going for the pin, say on the left side of the green or right even in the middle of the green. It'd be an easier shot. Now on the left side of the green, you know, the angle is pretty intimidating. The water's right in front of you. So that, that which is why now I think, and you had a great point. Now that's where they all bail out because, you know, they're on the left side of the fairway and the, the pin's kind of left. That's, that's a hard golf shot. But if you were kind of on the right side of the fairway in the old days, you'd have a pretty good look down to that pin there, and guys would hit the ball in the water more often, I believe, than they do now. Now everybody hits it to the right fringe, it seems like, and then try and make a par from there. So yeah, again, they made the tee longer and tighter, and just made it into a you know kind of a short par five.
0: And those are the best holes, right, where it entices you to take that yep. risk on, but then the risk can also bring in a disaster, but the risk can also bring you a birdie, right? And, yeah, it's, I love the yep. kind of holes like that where it's like, oh, man, do you go and try to make a three and take that yep. risk on? But, yeah, it seems now they take, boy, they seem like that's just a total risk-off hole. They'll they'll be fine with missing it, right? And if you can yeah. average four and a half for the week, you're probably okay to the field on that hole anymore.
1: Yeah, I would love to see the averages from you know year or or you know 2000 to this year on the uh, on the on the 11th hole and in the fifth hole and the seventh hole. You know, again, maybe they're trying to make the scores higher. I, I don't think they are, but uh, well, I'm not really sure what their reasoning was. You know, that was uh, Cody Johnson back then. I think he was the catalyst uh, for those changes. He didn't like where Tiger was hitting the ball and having wedge. But again, it's happened right every 20 years. Jack did it. You know, they kind of you know Jack proofed the golf course, and then they Tiger proofed it, and now they have to you know Brooks proof it and, and roy proof it again. But again, it, golf is still a hard game, and to me, the fun of it is kind of lost on that golf course. You know, especially number seven. Seven, you could make a double bogey there, triple bogey easily by kind of getting way up there and hitting a wedge in the bunker, and then you know, or going over the green in the bunker. So now you're hitting seven iron, eight iron, six iron to the It's Just kind of lost that feel to me.
0: You brought this up, and I was actually going to be one of my next questions: is uh, the chairman of Augusta National yep. a very prestigious, you know, position to have in the world of golf? Uh, who was the the chairman when you were there, and as an assistant golf pro, what's your relationship like normally with that chairman of Augusta National? And and uh, just be curious to see who 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 you dealt with as the ultimate boss when uh, when you were spending your time at Augusta.
1: Yeah, he just kind of gave me the, the chills, bringing back the memories of my first day there. And uh Mr. Jack Stevens was, was the chairman when I was there and probably one of the most, I don't know the words to describe him, just an amazing man and uh very quiet, just had this kind of power to him, very quiet power. Everybody respected him. He's from Arkansas. And uh just an amazing, wonderful human being that you know, I was very proud and very, Honor to be under his his leadership per se. And uh, quick story, if you have time, about my first day there. Um, I was going. I wanted to go out to the 13th tee box to kind of check it out because I was a a fan at the Masters two years before I was working there, just by by chance. And I was warrant to look at the 13th tee just to stand back there, and because you know, no one is allowed back there. And Tony took me out there, and we're out there, and one of the caddies came driving up in a golf cart, and said. Hey, you guys are on the tee. I'm like, what? My first day. I just got here. And um, so, like, wow. So we drive in, and I see Dave Spencer, the head pro, and he says, "Let's go, suit up." I'm like, okay. He goes, "Doug, we're we're playing with Mr. Stevens and Tony and I." And I almost, pretty much, had a heart attack right there.
0: Oh, what's those nerves like on that first tee?
1: Well, one of my best stories is one of my worst stories of all time. So now I'm I'm shaking. I got to play with Mr. Jack Stevens, who I hadn't, haven't met before. They meet him on the first tee, and I was not doing too well. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's about probably 15 caddies kind of standing around right there, and you know this new kid from New York, and you know so get my club. And Tony wasn't there yet, and Dave says, so Mr. Stevens says, go ahead. And they, after I met him. And, my my hand shakes sometimes on the first tee, but I couldn't even feel my hand. I didn't know what I was doing. One, I'm hitting the ball on the first tee at Augusta National for my first time ever. Number two, I'm playing with my, my boss, the head pro. And number three, I'm playing with the chairman of Augusta National. And, you know, it was, was out-of-body experience. So I tee the ball up, put it down, and I take out my, my three because I, I didn't think I could hit my, my driver yet. And luckily, the tee at Augusta National, the first tee, little elevated, because I cold topped it.
0: Oh God!
1: It rolled. Luckily, it rolled about 30 yards down the hill, because you know, it just you know, it was downhill. So I literally cold topped it, and uh, like, oh my God! So Mr. Stevens says, uh, in his very quiet, stern voice, says, "Doug, here at Augusta, we hit tour happy." And I kinda of smiled. Then I had a ball in my back pocket and I put it down again and this time I kinda of heel kinda of shanked it into the left trees. Not very far, but it was airborne. And he says, One more. <laughs> I, I I literally started crying, I think, because I was so upset. But and so the caddy throws me another ball and I said, Come on, Doug, hit the ball like you know you can. And I hit it down the ferry pretty far. Had a pitch much to the green. Um, pulled a little left, made a mulligan, mulligan bogey, and then I was fine. I had an eagle putt on the second hole. Um, I hit a three-wood down there again, and Dave Spencer, the head pro to me, you don't own a, a driver? I said, not yet. I'm not really ready yet. So I got the ball. Luckily, I got the ball in the green, had an eagle putt. I made a birdie, get to the eighth hole. I was just right of the green at two, and I hit a little lob shot over the mounds and went in the hole for eagle. Mr. Oh, Stevens, man. walked. Mr. Stevens walked by me and him and I were partners and he gave me a little high five. And I still remember that like it happened five, five minutes ago. And, uh, get to number nine. I hit about five feet and the pin was on the top shelf and I missed a birdie putt. And Dave says, Tony, take Doug around to the back nine. Mr. Stevens and I are done. We'll see you later. And now I can finally breathe. And I think I, I shot one over par and, uh, you with that mulligan, two mulligans in the first hole And one of my best experiences of my life was playing the back nine with Tony. We each had our own caddy and something that I'll never forget. So that was my first day at Augusta National.
0: Well, I'm sure Mr. Stevens probably, you weren't the first person to probably be shaking on the tee at Augusta with him. So what a cool way of him kind of calming the situation down, right? Like what a gentleman, because I'm sure he could see what was going on. Sounds like he's just a total yeah, he class act.
1: Yeah, he was a, a classic class man, and I, I, I can still hear his voice. Doug, here at Augusta, we hit till we're happy. And I've used that line. Well, I used that line for the next year with the members, I mean, and the guests. And I probably said that another hundred or a thousand times when I was, you know, teeing off, you know, with, you know, members of my own club and whatever. So just just a great line.
0: Well, you probably see it with the members guests or with the members bring guests on their, of their nerves too, right? I mean, oh, there has it to was be some off. pretty yeah. ugly first tee shots, right? I mean, I'd be, I would tell myself I could do this, but I would be, oh, you I'd know. be a wreck on that first tee. There's no yeah. question about it. Everything goes fast and that's nice to yep. let them hit a couple to get the round started because it could be, I imagine it'd be quite a nerve wracking experience to say the least. Um,
1: Again, yeah, part of my job was to kind of greet people on the first tee and make them comfortable and i probably told that story probably once a day to somebody that was like i can't believe i'm here what am i doing what do i do so i told him that story i made him feel better
0: <laughs> well uh i know you also had another uh, really wonderful relationship with another augusta national member mr yeah. arnold palmer and uh how did you first get to meet mr palmer and um you know how did that how did that relationship kind of start up with with him in in and- You know, we kind of went from there, but how did you first get in contact with him and and kind of spend some time with him?
1: Well, we don't have enough time for the whole story, but I did meet him when he he came to Augusta, but he wasn't a member there yet when I was there, but he came. It was the year that he had prostate surgery, and he wanted to see if he could walk the golf course. So I think he came in February or March of that year. When I met him, he pulled up in in one of the vans. He was being dropped off from the airport, and I just met him quickly there. And I, I told him quickly that I was interviewing for the head professional job at the traditional golf club where he was going to live and, and, that, and he was the architect for. He didn't own it or anything, but he was going to live there, you know, in the wintertime when he came out for the Bob Hope and, and he designed the golf course. So it was a very quick kind of meeting and that was about it. And uh, the first thing he just said to me, have you, seen, have you seen Jack yet? And I said, yeah, he was here last week. He goes, Son of a gun, he beats me every time. So he wasn't happy that, that Mr. Nicholas was already there doing a practice round. So that was kind of funny, but, um, so long story short, I had answered the phone at the Augusta national golf shop and a gentleman named David Chapman, who was one of the uh, owners of tradition happened to call the golf shop long story short. Again, I happened to answer the phone. It was late at night and I almost didn't answer it. He happened to be, you know, again, developing the Tradition golf club in La Quinta, California. And long story short, I was going out there for for vacation for a week with some, some friends. He asked me to play a different golf course, and then meet him afterwards, and he seemed to like me. And then five months later, I became the first professional at the traditional golf club in La Quinta, where Mr. Palmer was going to be a member. He designed it, and uh, I met him in June of 1997. He came out to do a tour. And that was the first day I met him. It was 108, 118 degrees, and we traveled around the golf course with Mr. C, his partner Ed C, and that was an amazing day.
0: And I know, in, in time, you got to work with Mr. Palmer and helping him with his golf swing, and he kind of trusted you with with your eye and, and your ability to teach. Uh, how did that come about of, of kind of instructing a living legend in in yeah boy there's got to be some pressure <laughs> if you're helping mr ronald palmer with his golf game how, how is it to teach somebody who's accomplished so much and in his own right really knows the golf swing and you're you're dealing with sure. literally an icon like how as a golf professional did you sort of manage that part of the relationship when mr palmer is asking you for help you know to kind of give him the best advice and, and and help him become a little bit better
1: yeah i started shaking as you asked me that question it, it makes me nervous to the day. but uh he was doing a little group outing. You know, it was a very private course, but uh, Mr. Palmer could have six guests out, and he would play nine holes with each. They were from AT and T, and this was 2000, uh, 2001 in the in the fall. And there was a liaison. Greg Arnie was there from AT and T, kind of. He was, he knew Mr. Palmer well, and he was like, you know, he was the go between between the AT and T guys and Mr. Palmer. We're watching him hit balls. So I was in my my blazer on the range, and Mr. Palmer hitting the ball kind of heavy and just and. He loves to hit every shot perfect. And if he doesn't hit the shot perfect, he was very upset. And I could tell he was getting upset and uh, just kept hitting his irons a little fat. And I just looked to Greg and I said, he's got to stop dropping his right knee. And Greg said, you're right, Doug. And Mr. Palmer overheard, I guess, one of us and said, Dougie, what did you say? I said, nothing, sir. He looked at me in his tough face and said, what did you say? I said, uh, you need to stop dropping your right knee. Is kind of going down to the ground right before impact, and that's why hitting everything a little heavy. Say, so, all right, what should I do? I'm like, oh my god! So we just gave him a couple of things to tr- you know try and push off your right foot. Going when you're coming down, just you know, feel a little taller coming through the ball. Next one was a little heavy. Next one was perfect. Next one was perfect. Next one was good. And again, like I said, when, whenever he hit a good golf shot his face kind of lit up and he just loved to hit balls and loved to see the ball flying the way he wanted it to. And it was kind of fun to watch. And I had watched him hit balls for five years, you know, probably, you know, 10, 15,000 balls worth and never said a word and just watched him. And we had played probably 10 times over those years and, and never said a word to him. And he never asked. And all of a sudden now it was, it was on. So we hit some a couple drivers, hit some great. So now we go to the first tee. And the first hole a tradition is over water. And, you know, Mr. Palmer always had to go over the water. He can kind of go out to the right. There's a par five. He'd go out to the right, but he never wanted to go out to the right. And he always took on the water and uh, gets up there. Now now I'm a little nervous. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And he bombs it, just kills it. Um, and he turns around. There's probably those six guys there, a couple of caddies, and there's some members who are always watching Mr. Palmer too often. He turns to me and points to me and says, There's my man right there. And I am just like, huh? <laughs> so long story short, you know, again, well the Bruce Fleischer happened to be there as well. He just played with Mr. Palmer over the weekend in a tournament. And he came up to me and says, What did you tell him? I haven't seen him make that golf swing all, all weekend. I said, Not much. Just to kind of stay taller for the ball. So that was it. And he comes in and uh he said he played great. He said, "When he comes back for Thanksgiving, I think well, maybe Christmas time he will be back. We're going to start working together." And that was it. And that was incredible.
0: What a story! Was yeah. he actually a pretty good student? Could he interpret? Oh yeah, for, I mean, well, yeah, yeah. Could he, he? I mean, it's obviously a great golf swing and fundamentally proper to start off with. But so you're just doing little nuanced changes, but. Obviously, he's a really good athlete and understood the golf thing. Was it actually fairly taken that it's Mr. Arnold Palmer? Was teaching yeah. him fairly easy in the sense that he's strong, athletic, and could kind of make those changes or slight nuances you wanted?
1: No, it wasn't easy at all. In fact, I had to just take a gulp and, and just kind of hope that it worked because if it didn't work, he'd get, you know, again, because he loved it a good golf shot. Any, any bad shot, he would be upset. But uh, so the quick story he was doing a, a conference call when he came back in January for the senior skins game. And he had mentioned on this conference call that he started to work with somebody now on his golf game. And one of the reporters asked him who that person was. He said, Doug March, the head pro hair tradition. We played many years. We've been friends and I asked him for some help and, and we're doing some work. And I've never felt this good since, you know, no one's ever worked with me, with me since my, my father this much. And so I didn't know about the call. I get the call from, from Larry Bahana, who's a local sports writer, he says, Doug Duck. duck. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, You better start ducking. I'm like, Larry, where are you talking? He goes, We just got off a national conference call with Mr. Palmer. He said you're his first teacher since his father, basically. Well, I did start crying. I didn't know what to do. So uh I hung up the phone, he said be prepared to get a lot of phone calls today. Alright, thanks Larry, take care. So I go out, he's on the range shooting balls. I go out to the range and say, Mr. Palmer, what did you do? And he said, gotcha, didn't I? You know, he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, I wasn't his yeah. first teacher, maybe in this breadth of how much we've been doing, but he's had pros teach him stuff, but he knew that he could maybe help me out. or I wasn't really sure of the, the end result or his motive, but uh, he kind of smiled and put his arm around me and said, yeah, gotcha. So I said, I can't thank you enough. And, uh, yeah, you he know, we watched the hit balls for twenty minutes that day and I went back in the shop and there was probably 15 messages for me. And uh it was unbelievable. It was something that I've never dealt with before. And um, you know, USA Today did an article, uh, every paper in, in Florida did an article. It was something that I'll never forget that he did and, and for the next three weeks we had a great time, pretty much every day, either thirty minutes or, or you know, say so either two hours or thirty seconds we did it. And, uh, you yeah, know, a couple of videos that I kept to myself and, uh, very, very cool.
0: What was Mr. Palmer like when he could let his guard down with other members at his club or, you know, where he's not quote unquote out in the public? Uh, what was he like in that sort of setting where it's, you know, he can just let loose a little bit and it's not that big of a deal. He's around friends and in people that he, he trusts and enjoys spending time with. Was there much different than the public figure or, um... You know, how how was he when when he was not in the public eye?
1: Yes, it's hard to describe. Um, He knew who he was, per se. He knew when he was on, he had to be on. But he loved being, or not on, per se. When he was in the locker room, he put his feet up, took his shoes off, um, had his little kettle warm with a twist of lemon. Um, He loved that. He just loved being a guy, a normal guy, and, telling jokes and listening to jokes and laughing, making fun of people. Yeah, um, he was just, again, I didn't spend a whole lot of time with him in the casual setting per se. Well, I went, went, went to dinner with him a few times, but, uh, but, you know, when we were at the dinner, he would be Arnold Palmer or when people came over to him and he was the most gracious person I've ever met in my life in terms of dealing with the public, you know, in quotes and, and people. Um, so, again, you, you can say he had a, a switch maybe, you know, not to sound like, you know, rude about it, but he he knew when he was out there in the public eye that people wanted to talk to him and he would talk to everybody and anybody and signed every autograph I've ever seen anybody do. You know, I've been around tour players before and they try to leave, but he took care of everybody. Uh, but to answer your question, yes, he was a normal, everyday Joe in the locker room. And uh, it
0: was pretty cool. How do you think he handled the public so well? Where like he's like the gold standard of how you treat the the public or your fans or for his brand. You know, do you think it was just naturally easy for him because he liked people, or what made him so good at not getting irritated with people when he's trying to have a steak and someone comes up and wants a picture? Like it just you never hear any stories that. You know, after all yep. those years of being that famous, you think at some point you, geez, yep, you just have to go eat a meal, right? But he never, he never seemed to lose that touch with the public. And do you think he enjoyed it, or was he just that good at understanding that this might be this one person's thirty seconds to meet him, and he wanted to yep. make that special for that person?
1: You hit the right, nail on the head right there. Yeah, but I think a lot of it came came from his father and his mother, um, and also from Mrs. Palmer. Well, you know, a lot of it from his upbringing, as you probably know, wasn't the wealthiest family in the world. His father worked on the golf course, became the superintendent and the head pro. And I think just from his humble beginnings, he understood, you know, who he was and where he came from. I think Mrs. Palmer, Winnie Palmer, kept him very, very grounded. She was an amazing woman too. i would lucky to meet her a few times. And so I think just everybody around him kept him grounded. Um, all of his friends that I got to meet, you know, the, You know, obviously, in his later years, you know, the Russ Myers, the Mr. Meacham, just people that around him always kept him who he was and uh, was kind of already stopped it kind of way. But uh, again, back to the question, I think a lot of it is from his his upbringing, such a humble beginning. And I think he cherished being who he was and took it to heart. And yes, you always hear stories about you know, tour players, athletes. always hear great stories but you always hear the bad ones too and you you wonder if they're true but you never heard one about mr palmer and i could tell you firsthand that i've never seen or anything that he did bad in any way
0: yeah you know i got my you know whatever it is 45 seconds with him when i was in high school at a champions tour event that was near us in aurora illinois and it was just like he made you feel like this is the most important thing in the world to him right now is shaking your hand and signing an autograph and How's your golf game? You know, just like look you straight in the eye. I mean, you're kind of, it's like meeting Santa Claus when you're six, right? Like, you can't believe you're actually yeah. spending 30 seconds with Mr. Arnold Palmer, but he made you feel comfortable. And I still remember, I mean, I can still picture yeah. him sitting in the golf cart after the round signing autographs. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm meeting Arnold Palmer, right? Like, this is the coolest thing. Oh, yeah, 100%.
1: Ever. Yeah. When I used to sit in my office, when I sat in my office, he would, you know, walk by and he'd park his cart. I'd see him walking in. I start shaking or getting nervous because this is a little bit out there, but it's almost like God walking in to your pro yeah. shop. And uh, I know that sounds crazy, but it's weird. But he didn't think of himself that way at all. And But that's the way people looked at him and the way I looked at him. And he'd walk in and shake my hand and hurt my hand every time. And, you know, I'd ask him to sign some things for either a charity or my brothers and my dad or mom and, He'd sit down at my desk and sign some things and he, he always, he, he looked at me and said, who's this for? Say, I oh, just a friend, you know, and he would sign different ways to different people. One, you know, his most famous one was, or obvious one was best wishes. Then if it was my dad, he'd sign best regards. And if it was for me, and I have many cherished things. He'd write best personal re- regards. So that was kind of cool. You know, he made you feel special, you know, to sign that to me was was really really cool and you know it to see how he signs for things for so that makes you feel special again he, he knows what he's doing and you know he knows how we, he, he can make you feel oh yeah
0: like I said it was i still i'll have that memory forever just the 30 seconds also i can't yeah. believe how big his forearms and hands were
1: oh it hurts i'm like yeah. oh my yeah. god
0: that guy's got like meat hooks for hands and his forearms were like the size of my my legs like he was just in his yep. 60s he was still just built like a beast yeah, you, know, you could tell he was strong, like Very really, really true. strong. Yeah, yeah he, he no, loved to was, work out. Yeah, yeah, you could, you know, you, you, know, it's uh, so cool. My one screen, last like, did.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just a quick one. You know, I was lucky to caddy for him in the Bob Pulp and happened to be his last ever official PGA Tour event. You know, he played Bay Hill in his event, but this was his last ever official PGA Tour event. And uh, you know, as you, back then it was a four day event. And I was very lucky to caddy for him that week. And uh, just on the first day, we get out of the car, and he drives. And Mr. Ed Ed C., his partner in the architecture, is kind of his closest confidant, was there as well. And we got out of the car, and he looks at me when I grabbed the bag. He says, Dougie, for the next four days, you do not leave me. i like, yes, sir, Mr. Palmer. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was kind of his you know, bodyguard, per se, which was kind of cool. So we had a great four days, 100 storm But the last day, we're on the 18th. 18th tee box at on the Palmer golf course, his golf course at PGA West. And it was a Saturday. It was on TV and uh, he knows they'd probably be showing him, but he sees my wife on the tee box and he kind of calls her over and gives her a kiss and says, which was kind of cool. And we go down to the fair where we're about 200 yards away. And he sees Megan, my wife again in the, by the ropes and he waves her in. I'm like, Oh my God. So he has her come, come join us again. He just gets it. You know, he knows what he's doing at all times. And, the place was packed. There was grandstands. It was just a mob scene. And now Megan's walking with us down the last 200 yards of the hole. And it was just something that I can picture, like, again, like it was yesterday. And really cool. So we finished around And we walked behind the grandstands. And there's thousands of people there. And he signed an autograph. And Megan's with us. And there was, like, this alleyway. You know, the ropes were all cordoned off up to the clubhouse. i say after about 30, 40 minutes, he looks at me and says, Buggy, let's go. And so I grabbed the bag. He says, Megan, come here. He puts her hands and his hands on her shoulder. and says, Dougie, go. And we go through the gallery ropes up top there in the clubhouse. And it was unbelievable. Megan looks at me and says, that was unbelievable. He's like a rock star or he's bigger than a rock star. So that was a moment that just shows you, again, and Megan doesn't get into the celebrities, doesn't really care. Knew Mr. Palmer pretty well. And, you know, it was great and everything, but didn't realize until that moment who he was and the kind of feel that people have for him so that was one of my favorite moments of all time in my golf career yeah i was a caddy so uh it was very special but just to show you how a girl you know sees somebody differently and says that was unbelievable so pretty cool
0: yeah it's uh you got some great stories like i said with 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 the gust i mean it's just it's fantastic and to spend time with like i said somebody like that it's I was looking forward to this podcast. I knew the stories would be great, but it's, you know, it's such a cool experience that you've got to do. Um, I hope I didn't bore like you too much. <laughs> oh, Thank God, you. no. I, I think the listeners, and I find them fascinating, like, you know, the, the experience that you've had, not that many people get to do that. And, I, and people who love golf love these kind of things, especially, like, good stories like that. Like, he was, you know, a great guy. It's not a It's not a story where it's, you know, well, actually he's kind of not like this in real life and behind the scenes. No, it's like, it's good and better, right? Like he's, he was such a class act. Yep. And to hear that from, you know, a golf professional and, and working with him and stuff, I think it just reinforces the legend, right? Of like, he was just a class act day in, day out and understood what he meant to the, the golfing world and, and lived up to it. It's a great guess, story.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's something that that will never be repeated in my life. I don't know. Or in no. anybody's life, I don't think. No one can touch him.
0: No, I don't think anyone can touch him from the from the connection he had with his fans. No. I, I, and I don't think you can fake that. I think it's just, you know, Mickelson might be of the today's players closest maybe where people just – I agree. You know, yeah. they want him to hit it out of the tent and, you know, and he kind of plays into it. I, but I don't think – I can't name any other player that has yeah. that where he's, you know, he gives those guys and the fans the, the that look and the nod from Arnold Palmer and the thumbs up and – Yep. There's a lifelong connection there. He he understood, he understood it. And I don't, I mean, I I don't know this. I don't know him at all. But it looked like it was also fun for him to be Arnold Palmer and to give that back. I mean, I he don't think you've been fake be it for Palmer. that long. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, and I love he, it. Like, he that, just that it wasn't but, yeah. a fake. It's such good yeah. stuff. Um, got one final one because I always ask the guys who are on the podcast. I love golf course architecture, and you know, you've got to play some good ones. So let's take Augusta out of it. But of uh, all your years of being a professional, what's maybe two or three of the best courses you've gotten to play architecturally and, and what makes those courses so special and so good from that standpoint?
1: It's not even a question for number one to me, even Augusta. Well, uh, that's different. I'm a little biased there, but I also was lucky to play it enough. But Sandhills is my number one easily. One of the best places that and I've been lucky to play a lot of places in the country, a couple in Ireland. But uh, Sand Hills to me is a very special place. Locate, but like you said, the architecture is just phenomenal. Um, again, I think a lot of it was even man-made, as you know, as a as you played dismal river pretty close by. I think it's it's similar. Yeah. Haven't Fair. been lucky to play there yet, but I think Sand Hills to me is just a very special place.
0: Is there another one on the list that's
1: up there? Like uh, that I would take two? certain holes. Yeah, I would take certain holes for you know, fifteen at at point might be one of my favorite par threes in the world. Um, again, I don't get golf courses to make it get overrated very easily. Um, there's so many good ones though. I mean, to me, they're all good golf courses. Um, uh, to me, it's more about the ambiance and the service and the caddy. You know, that's what, to me, what makes a great club special. Um, Friars head might be up there with the service and the, the caddy program and the golf course. It's, it's also what we call Crenshaw. Um, golf course, so, you know, it is similar to Sand Hills in that respect, but to me, it's about the service, the everything about it kind of makes a great country club to me. Um, not so much the great golf course, but everything about it.
0: Have you played National Golf Links?
1: I have, I've been, yeah, fortunately played there probably about four or five times. Um, at first, yeah, at first, I didn't love it to me, it was kind of, you know, a little. The, word, the words rinky dink are really bad words, but kind of funky. But the more I played it, the more I developed a love for the architecture. And uh, you know, to me, national from like the sixth hole to the 14th hole are some of the best holes in golf. Um, the first hole is a drivable par four, but the green is very interesting. So you can make a birdie or a six. That's what I don't like about a lot of, you know, when I say rinky dink, where you can make a birdie or a triple, you know, with, yeah. with, with, with very similar shots. So um, but again, National—it's a beautiful place, uh, very well run. Obviously, the lunch there is very—you know—National is known for the lunch and and the atmosphere and the views of the sound um, of the bay. But you know, their their middle eight holes are some of the best holes uh, you'll ever play. <clears throat> Shinnecock to me, Shinnecock and Beth Page are both uh, very hard, but also very fair. Probably two of the fairest golf courses to be that hard that you can play. Except for the U.S. Open on a Saturday, but uh, besides that, Shinnecock is a very fair golf course. And again, the ambiance there, the culture there, is just phenomenal. And you know, being grown up in New York and being in the Midsection, we we're very fortunate to play so many great golf courses. Maidstone, where I work, is in my top three. Not a long golf course, but one of the prettiest places that you ever get to see, and just very low key on the ocean. So, if I two golf courses left, there'd be Sand hills and probably Maidstone to play
0: well you're not gonna not gonna get an argument for me out of going out to Mullen, Nebraska to play golf i people are probably sick of me hearing it or saying this on this, yeah. but I think it's some of the best golf in the world in that region if you like you know link style oh, it's yep. just Sand Hills is my favorite golf course in the world as well, and Dismal River is a real second close from where I'm a member at out there. It's still just it's so good
1: it's just natural um, yeah.
0: Yeah, right. It's just there. You don't have to, you're not moving much sand out there to make the holes happen. They're just kind of naturally there, and you get that feel. Uh, uh, Sandhills to me, like I said, it changed the way I thought about golf course architecture. I was like, you know, Butler yeah. or, or big Parkland style golf courses. What I, you know, grew up kind of idolizing playing in the Chicagoland area. Then I went out there and I went, sure. whoa, this yeah. is so yeah. much more creative and. Natural and wowed. I fall in love with it quickly, and uh, I, I agree. You know, yeah, I are from New York, and
1: you know, Chicago and New York are very similar golf courses, and yeah, exact same feelings.
0: Yeah, you go out there, and it changes your perspective of you know what great golf truly is. And I still love you know a great Parkland style golf course, but that's still yeah. the most creative, fun style to play day in day out to me is is that style of golf. So yeah, I've been lucky enough to play it as well. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. That's that's my number one as well. So good to hear. Well, thank. Thank you so much for your time today. I love the stories, and like I said, we're, we're honored to have you as uh, as a staff member on the on the Sub-70 side for the equipment, and thanks for joining us today for the podcast. I've been wanting to do this for a while and, and kind of get this out there, but I, I think uh, the stories were great, and thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Jason, very much. Thanks for listening, and go Sub-70.